Welcome to SeatWorks, a podcast produced by the curriculum and training team at the Center on Education and Training for Employment, a translational research center on Ohio State's campus. We work where research meets reality. I'm your host, Farah Allen, a program coordinator at the center. This series of podcasts focuses on workforce development and will feature discussions about preparing an organization for implementation or modification of a training program. To learn more about our work, you can visit our website, seat.osu.edu. Today, you'll be listening to a conversation between Tracy Lepicki, the Associate Director of Operations and Strategic Initiatives and the Program Director for the Curriculum and Training Program at the Center with her colleague, Dr. David Julian, a translational research scientist and the Program Director of Evaluation and Community Practice at the Center. Here, they discuss assessing an organization's needs and problem-solving processes and how it's essential in planning a professional development program. Hi, Dave. I'm excited to talk to you about your work at the Center and its importance in professional development planning. Can you give us some insight about translational research and its components? We've spent considerable time uh, reviewing this literature, really trying to understand how folks are um, describing translational research and have adapted a number of those um, definitions and accepted procedures in the field. So for SEAT, the focus in the translational research mission is really on moving innovation and interventions that solve problems into routine use. So in our work with various sponsors of projects, we're trying to understand problems that they present and then through accessing innovation, trying to design and implement an intervention that solves that problem. So in our approach, in SEAT's approach, there are really three different components. There is a knowledge generation component because lots of times new knowledge or new understandings or new insights come out of, uh, of this work. So that's the first component. There's a second component which really focuses on efficient and effective implementation of an intervention. And in translational research, that's often referred to as translation. And then there's a, a third component, which is once we understand that something works, the effort to use that in other settings. Seed's work has really focused mostly on the effort to translate or implement evidence-based practices that address the problems that sponsors bring to our various teams. We've sort of taken to referring to that process of translation as a formal effort to solve problems. Our problem-solving process has a number of different steps that are formalized in the literature. We probably approach them in a much more informal way. So that process really focuses on problem definition, really understanding the values or the requirements relative to a specific project. Out of that, there's an opportunity to generate potential solutions, and then to select a specific approach to solving a problem based on specific values. And then at the end of that process, some effort to evaluate or understand the extent to which we've been successful. And in the best case, this is an iterative process so that you can, over time, build on lessons learned, ultimately create an approach to a specific problem that has some utility across time or even across different settings. 
I appreciate that level of detail. It helps our listeners to understand the foundations of translational research. You mentioned approaches to specific problems. What is the first step in looking at problem solving within an organization? So if we, if we think about problem solving as a process, which I believe it is, particularly in an organizational context, the initial step is to really think about what problem we're trying to solve. And I would argue that very often we give little attention to that focus or we may not address that with sufficient detail. Is it in your experience that when you are working with a group for the first time, an organization for the first time, or or maybe even not just the first time, that they come to you having a pretty solid understanding of what their problem is or what they think their problem is? And then what does that look like? Is that accurate? Is there some other information you need to kind of tease out? So I would say as a general rule, when I've been involved in working with potential partners uh, um, or organizations, there is often a sort of pre-definition of what we should do prior to trying to understand what the problem is. Sometimes that what we should do comes out of a pretty solid problem definition, but um, sometimes not. And I would even argue that I've been involved in projects where we've gotten to the end of the project and we have solved the problem, but it probably was not the most appropriate problem to be addressing given the client's need. Now that that's never been as dramatic as I'm making it sound, but I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't spend some time up front really clarifying what the problem is without any reference at all to what we should do. So not jumping to the solution too quickly. Exactly. Um, and spending time thinking about what the problem at hand is or maybe what the problems that contribute to I'm wondering, like, it could be the case that there's a series of things that sort of relate to each other. Not one of those is what's going to get to the end, but it's sort of unpacking multiple things. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a really useful way to think about it. And in fact, the tool that we use to sort of understand all of this is um, something called a logic model that probably many people in our audience are familiar with, but we found that that is a foundational tool and that we can begin to understand issues if-then sort of sense. If this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And you can apply that concept to any problem. So you you could start with a, a specific issue. You can begin to break that down into more precise problems. In fact, another tool is, again, many people might be familiar with is, is called the five whys exercise. So, uh, you know, we might start with a problem and ask the question, why is this important? And really try to begin to focus more specifically on what is it that we're trying to address. Then, of course, that is directly related to the idea of defining an outcome. So if our problem produces a strategy or an action that results in an outcome that solves the problem, we're in really good shape. If that's not the case, then we need to spend more time sort of thinking about what it is we are trying to address from a problem perspective, what actions we're choosing to take and and what outcomes we're trying to uh, produce. So in the problem solving sense, all of those components are connected and I think are really important at the very beginning of a project. 
in terms of getting everyone on the same page. And in fact, if you look at the uh, project management literature, this is a basic sort of foundational tool, again, another tool, this idea of creating a charter or creating project uh, specifications, and then the project management languages work breakdown structure, which I would argue is pretty similar to the idea of a logic model. A sort of a coherent process that uh, moves from problem definition to solution generation to implementation and ultimately evaluation. As you're describing this, I'm imagining a pretty solid linkage between each of the components that you just described. And I want to circle back quickly to, you mentioned the five whys. So is that the idea of asking the why question, and then you get the answer, and then you ask why about that, and then you get the answer and why about that? Is, is that correct? Or could you explain that a little bit in, in a little bit more detail? That's exactly the idea, that through this process of asking the why question, we begin to get more and more clarity around what it is we're or, or why we're choosing to engage in a specific activity. And I mean, you can think of, you know, the projects that SEED has been involved in historically and sort of apply that idea to strategy selection. I think it's, it's really useful in that um, space between problem definition and strategy selection. And then ultimately, as we connect those, what we're doing is we're creating some assumptions about how a program or an action or an intervention is designed to work. So if we assume X, if we assume this problem and we choose to engage in this strategy, we're making an assumption that this strategy will provide some resolution to a specific problem. And, and part of the problem solving process is to make that explicit. Until we engage in the work, it is an assumption, right? We don't really know whether a particular strategy will resolve a problem until we put that strategy in place and then measure the outcome. So essentially what we're doing in this process is testing assumptions, which is when the evaluation component comes into play. So Dave, to expand on that, our team at the center focuses heavily on training. So we really understand that it's an integral part of an organization, whether it's done in a meaningful way or done poorly. Can you give an example of a problem statement that is addressed by training? I can. In fact, the team that I work with, the community engagement and evaluation team, is developing a project right now, and we're in that conversation around what problem we're trying to address. And the, the problem statement, you know, the flip side of that coin is the outcome that you're trying to achieve. So in this particular case, we've had several conversations with the project sponsor, and the outcome is, has been expressed in a number of different ways. And in, in fact, it's probably fair to think about this particular effort in terms of multiple outcomes. But the, the sponsor in this case wants to increase linkages between schools and community resources. So one outcome is schools would have access to resources in the community that could help their students learn. A second outcome is enhancing access to those resources once they're identified and developed. A third outcome is increasing engagement or increasing family engagement in their students' educations. And then finally, the idea is if some of these other outcomes are achieved, that that ultimately would produce benefit for youth and families. So you can easily turn those outcome statements into a problem statement that, again, our job is to design an intervention that 
uh, results in the achievement of, of specific outcomes. In this particular case, there are specific individuals that are charged non-seat employees, in fact, school district level employees who are charged with producing these outcomes. So in this particular case, our job is to develop or create a training program that would allow those district level or educational service center level employees to work with school districts to produce these outcomes. So in this particular case, we could think of the problem statement, something along the lines of what professional development is necessary to facilitate the process that a school would go through to identify needs and assets around family engagement, to identify potential community partners, to develop meaningful collaboration with those community partners, and ultimately to create a process that would permit the achievement of those outcomes. That's a fairly long-winded problem statement, and it clearly needs some more work, but the value in putting it into this form is we know lots of things about what this project is going to look like as a result of going through this process. We know it's our responsibility will be to provide that professional development or training, and we can actually understand the content of that professional development based on some of the specifics around what these uh, specific individuals at the educational service center or district level will need to do. So that's one example. It Virtually uh, every project that we're involved in at this particular point in time, we're framing in terms of a problem statement. It, sometimes it's fairly informal and, and part of the negotiation with the sponsor is to get agreement on what that problem statement is, which then puts everybody in a position of understanding whether the proposed, in this case, professional development will be uh, sufficient to achieve the outcomes that we're interested in. So um, that's one example, again, could probably come up with some others if we, if we put our minds to it. So with those linkages, it sort of sounds linear, but what you just described to me does not sound linear, that it's iterative, that there's a looping back and a sort of both examining, did this work the way we thought it would? And if the answer is no, a looping back and trying another strategy, correct? It's, I mean, that's a, that's a great question because it, what I've just described is sort of a problem solving model. And as all, as with all models, it's a representation of reality and it is represented in a linear way. We do this, then we do this, then we do this. But in reality, it, it's more of a, a process with feedback loops built in. If we're fortunate enough to be involved in a multi-year project, we may have some opportunity to test assumptions if they've worked. That's all well and good. That sort of implies that we continue to operate as sort of originally planned. On the other hand, if we discover that we've we've addressed the problem partially or perhaps not even addressed the problem, then we have the opportunity to engage in what we call project improvement planning, which is an opportunity to just uh, sit down and understand how things are working and improve our response to a problem moving forward. And, and again, you know, we're drawing on quality assurance and continuous quality improvement practices when we do that. And we would certainly strongly recommend that projects be characterized that way. If we're engaged in a project that has a limited time frame, we, we may not have the opportunity to do that. The default is typically 
asking those kinds of questions on at least an annual basis. Sometimes we have an opportunity to ask those questions on a uh, quarterly basis or, or perhaps even a monthly basis, although that's, in my experience, is relatively rare. Folks usually are comfortable asking those kinds of questions. The default is, is typically annually. So let me ask a question relative to that about doing that examination or that evaluation piece too soon. You mentioned sort of a cycle for reviewing, but is there a cycle for running through the program? And that needs to be sort of defined so that you don't prematurely try to examine whether it has worked or not. It has maybe hasn't had a chance to work. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, again, that's just a fantastic question. Another concept that we use in this work, we refer to as a program improvement cycle, which refers to exactly what you're talking about. And that occurs, again, in my experience, prematurely. So the, the idea of a program improvement cycle is that we're very specific in terms of what time is necessary, months or weeks or days are necessary in order to, to complete a full cycle of the program because again, one of the concepts in program logic is that we've got to deliver a program in its entirety before we produce an outcome. So the program improvement cycle really reflects what time is necessary in order to fully deliver a program. And it also reflects the time necessary for an outcome to actually be produced. Um, so as we think about sort of outcomes, those outcomes really have to, so for example, if we were thinking about a program improvement cycle of 12 months, you know, the question becomes, is 12 months sufficient to deliver the program? And is 12 months sufficient to produce a volume of outcome that is, that we're able to measure and, and make some judgments about uh, outcome achievement and so forth? That, that's a critical question in this work. And one question that I, that I find that we often neglect. So from my context, thinking about training programs and professional development systems, there needs to be enough time for the person participating in that program to truly participate in that program before we can come in and see how well they're doing in the program or how well the program itself is doing overall. Could you talk a little bit, you said outcomes, and sometimes I hear the word output and we also have the word outcome. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between those two ideas? Absolutely. Um, both of those ideas are important. Output is typically the volume of service delivered. So we could define output as we delivered 16 hours of coursework or our participants attended three classes or participants were exposed to uh, 20 hours of instruction. So that tells us how much service they received, but it doesn't really tell us what outcome or what benefit was derived out of, for example, participation in 20 hours of instruction. I mean, you would assume, again, important concept, but you would assume that by virtue of participating in 20 hours of instruction, I've learned some new knowledge. So measuring the extent to which new knowledge was learned is an outcome measure, while measuring the number of hours of instruction to which a participant was exposed is an output measure. Outputs, by the way, can be terminal uh, measurements in the sense that as a program provider, I'm responsible for 20 hours of instruction, but generally we encourage where resources permit trying to go the next level in terms of really understanding whether the, that instruction resulted in learning 
And of course, that then, if we thought about that in terms of problem definition, that suggests that in this particular example, from somebody's point of view, inadequate knowledge is a problem. Um, so again, in the early stages of a project, we want to connect all these different components and understand whether they make logical sense in terms of what a partner or a client's trying to achieve. When you talk about partners and clients and participants, um, has me thinking about all the different stakeholder groups that might engage in this process. And it also has me thinking about buy-in. And it sounds like the process is um, valuable to get people on the same page. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about using this process as a tool to both engage stakeholders, so some, some information from you relative to who needs to be at the table, and then, and then also sort of talking about what the value of buy-in is, what does buy-in look like, um, what, how does that concept connect in this conversation? So again, uh, I think a really important question. And what this approach to problem solving, it is a specific approach to problem solving. And I think it's one thing that the Center for Education and Training for Employment offers to partners and clients that I wouldn't say is not available in other contexts, but it is a tried and true problem solving approach that I think we offer to our uh, clients, customers, partners. But it does imply that customer is committed to engagement in that process. And so as we begin to develop a project, there's a project development phase where we're often going through these steps, even prior to a contractual arrangement, we're working with a partner. So we've got to be able to communicate clearly what's involved in that process. We've got to be able to conduct that process in a way that doesn't take weeks and weeks and weeks. And inevitably, some of that occurs in the project development phase, but it almost goes without saying that we're doing some of that post project development, which is not a bad thing because it's sort of a, uh, it enhances, I believe, the, the problem solving process. So the buy-in, I think what's really important is that folks understand the process, are prepared to sort of tolerate the process because there's a lot of process steps in what I'm describing, and then are committed and bought into that, to that activity. Another concept that we sort of employ that we've borrowed from Six Sigma is this idea of a process owner. So there's someone positioned who has some power to commit to the process, because we most often as a seat representative, my role very often is facilitating that process. The process owner role is a different role. That's usually a representative of the uh, customer or the client who has the power or the authority to commit to the process and, and sort of work through the process. So a lot of tools that we can use in this context. It's probably fair to say that in many instances, we're sort of pulling tools out as needed. Occasionally, we have the opportunity to do a process from start to finish, a problem-solving process from, from start to finish. In talking about these processes, I'm wondering if the approach varies between the public and the private sectors. Are the needs different, and how are they analyzed? So in the public sector, I think this is a, a fairly common approach to problem-solving. That process that I described previously is often referred to as the rational problem-solving model or approach. It's taught in planning schools. It's taught in public administration programs, taught in 
any curriculum where there is an effort to uh, understand specific um, issues and then uh, generate solutions and, and, and so forth. The reference to strategic planning in the public sector has become fairly prominent these days. In my opinion, strategic planning is just a variation on the theme. There are additional tools that we can sort of bring to bear through this, the strategic planning process, things like a SWOT analysis or an environmental scan, that sort of thing. And, you know, the reference to the SWOT analysis is really trying to understand strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats relative to any specific problem that we're trying to address. So I think a very common approach in the public sector. I also think it's a pretty common approach in the um, private sector, and I think, you know, various businesses use similar approaches relative to uh, understanding the needs of consumers and developing products and understand whether those products satisfy specific needs in the business sector. Now, again, this is, I, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with these concepts, but I've have a little bit of understanding of different approaches. The um, plan, do, study, act approach is essentially a variation on the rational planning approach. And that really is a, I think, fairly common approach to problem solving and where folks really try to understand a problem. There's some effort to implement a, a solution, perhaps on a limited basis, studying that in trying to understand whether it satisfies or solves a specific problem. And if that's the case, actually beginning to uh, implement that as a formal uh, problem solving effort. And I saw one reference actually in the business literature that described the plan do study act approach as applying scientific method to action. I, and I really like that way of thinking about problem solving. In the last decade, there's a, a an approach in business referred to as Six Sigma, and people can become trained at various levels of competency. And I think Six Sigma is an approach to problem solving that incorporates a lot of the tools and a lot of the ways that we think about translational research, in my mind, an almost one-to-one -one correspondence in terms of that approach and or in terms of the, the Six Sigma approach and, and translational research and lots of tools in the private sector toolbox. Some of them I have some knowledge of, but many of them are concepts that I'm still trying to learn about. There's a reference to A3 thinking and there's something called an X matrix that allows folks to sort of align aspirations and strategies and tactics, which is we have similar tools in the in the translational research toolbox. They just have different names. So again, I think a lot of overlap between how folks in the public sector apply these tools and how folks in the private sector apply these tools. And again, I'm a very strong advocate of this approach to problem solving and project development. It, I just believe it works and works very efficiently, actually. So the process owner role that you described, what I hear you saying is that that person is both sort of the champion for the initiative itself or the project itself, potentially, but then also might be in a decision-making capacity such that you know, not everything can happen by committee right? That you have exactly. multiple voices around the table, having the conversation, sort of helping to define or break out what all the components are. But at times there needs to be one individual who then makes a decision about what's next or, or which of those interventions is going to be tried first or 
what outcome is the most relevant to attempt to measure first versus what might be something later on. Is that correct from your perspective? Again, really important question. In a traditional sense, that idea of process owner is usually a person, senior level manager, who is, has the responsibility for a specific process. So for instance, in a manufacturing context, it might be the manager who's responsible for some aspect of the product production process. What we find is we've borrowed that concept and it works a little differently with respect to the public sector or the nonprofit sector. It's more of a person that we often, and sometimes we are explicit about identifying a process owner. Sometimes we mention the concept and sort of encourage the appropriate person to take on that role, but it's not nearly as definitive in the work that we do. And it can oftentimes be multiple folks. And this raises a really, I think, important question in the sense that a lot of the work in which seat associates are engaged are community-based or organizational-based projects where the stakeholder or where a group of folks, for instance, community representatives, their experience is critically important. So asking questions around how you engage that experience in the problem-solving process is, is very, very important. And there are models and approaches to doing that, that uh, frankly, they're challenging and, again, are, I, I believe, personally often neglect or often not used to their fullest potential in, in, in a lot of the work in which we're involved. A really important issue. So, Dave, we've touched on the program logic, the what are the needs that drive at the beginning, why does the partner or the client um, engage with us, what's the problem that they bring to the table, how you kind of start to get at the layers underneath that by asking the questions, um, the whys, the five whys as you described, and then continuing to move through the process to determine what strategy is going to be implemented, what intervention is going to be uh, put into place, and then looking at what the results are going to be, what are we going to count what are we going to look at from a, a process improvement perspective? What are we going to identify as the outcomes and evaluate? So that feels to me like that's the full cycle. And we've touched on some of the, the roles and responsibilities that folks have as they're engaging in this work. Is there anything else about problem solving that you want to touch on? I think the, the final component that I would add or that we might want to consider is sort of managing that process. And again, I think this is something that that seat brings to the equation that is at least somewhat unique in the, in the sense that seat associates are trained to facilitate this process. And we haven't talked specifically about how that relates to translational research, but I also think it's a, in my estimation is a definition of sort of the translation part of translational research. It's how you get evidence-based practices implemented in settings where they can produce outcomes that benefit people in communities, schools, and other organizations. So, uh, you know, I've been personally involved in this work for um, many decades at this point. There's a learning curve in terms of understanding these tools and understanding how to utilize these tools. But again, I would argue that an experienced and talented facilitator who moves through this problem solving model with a client or customer enhances the chances of implementing a strategy that actually solves 
a problem or addresses an issue that's important to the customer. So again, I'm very biased in my opinions because uh, just my observations over the years that have suggested that this approach is uh, an efficient way to think about the work that an organization like uh, the center does. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate all the information that you've shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Problem Solving Processes with our guests, Tracy Lepicki and Dr. David Julian. We hope you enjoyed it and will share it with your friends. If you'd like more information on this topic, you can contact us at go.osu.edu slash Ohio State for work. See our description for details. Be well and bye for now.